Welcome to the Making Kids Count podcast brought to you by Kentucky Youth Advocates, where we sit down with policymakers, community leaders, and youth to discuss ideas to make Kentucky the best place to be young. Now here's your host, Terry Brooks. Hey, we are so happy to have you today. Uh, first of all, uh, we want to thank uh, Aetna Health. Uh, if it was not for their support, we would not be doing these. Uh, secondly, this is, I believe, the 41st uh, partner forum that we have done since the pandemic began. And uh, as we always say, some of you are darn close to regular attendance pins, and some of you may be joining us for the first time. So uh, we are just as excited to have those regulars as we are those new folks, and uh, welcome. Uh, one other thing that I don't want to lose before uh, before we get into the topic at hand, uh, you know, uh, because we always talk to you about this, uh, this is ground zero in Frankfurt. Uh, the uh, General Assembly has reconvened. Uh, if you're paying attention, uh, measures are moving with all due speed. Uh, I want to encourage you that whether it's early childhood or child welfare, juvenile justice, or K-12, please go to our website, look at the blueprint for Kentucky's kids. You'll be able to find a bill tracker, uh, proposal summaries, calls for action. Uh, Now is the Super Bowl for advocates. Uh, So uh, we're counting on you to be engaged. Uh, Jesse was saying off camera that uh, today's topic uh, has drawn uh, an unusual number of folks. So you know that we have had uh, congressmen and the governor on this, and we've had uh, leaders from the Senate and House, and we've had many, many partners. But uh, the topic today uh, is hot. So uh, we are really happy to have you, and you should be happy with the panel we have. Uh, We're so delighted to have uh, Dr. Kish Kumi Price, uh, who is a a really core partner uh, to KYA. Uh, Kish works uh, at the Urban League and leads their educational initiatives there. Uh, Due diligence, because I try to be very transparent with people, Uh, KYA and the Urban League uh, are working together right now uh, to lay out what we believe are the strategic priorities for uh, Jefferson County Schools reopening. And uh, so Kish is a a great partner, wonderful thinker, uh, experienced educator, and now a policy wonk. So uh, I love that combination, Dr. Price. Uh, Sam Corbett uh, is one of those guys that he is either a renaissance guy or has the attention span of a gnat. Uh, I can say that because Sam's a good friend of mine, but uh, Sam uh, was a business leader uh, in Kentucky for a long time. Uh, He also is a former uh, school board member and school board chair. Sam headed up uh, an education foundation. So he was in the world of philanthropy uh, when it came to public schools. And currently, uh, he's doing an amazing job of lifting up key educational issues uh, as a a member of the media. Uh, He has a a series called Assignment Education, which appears uh, on a local station in the Louisville market, but then appears statewide on KET. So uh, 
Sam brings a, a, a very, very uh, diverse perspective, uh, a very much of an on the ground perspective to the topic today. And uh, Sam, I like always hesitate to compliment you, but we are really glad you're here. Uh, our third guest uh, was absolutely critical to this conversation uh, because we could not possibly have every constituency within the educational sector on this uh, panel, or we'd have 4011 people. But uh, when you talk to anyone in the world of education, they will tell you that the, the guy that brings a common ground to teachers and school board members, as well as superintendents and other school administrators, is Dr. Jim Flynn. Dr. Flynn uh, is uh, a practitioner. He's been an educator, including being superintendent. Currently heads up the Kentucky Association of School Superintendents. But again, I just want to emphasize that Jim's reputation is that when you hear him talk, don't think about just superintendents because he's a guy who listens to teachers and board members and other administrators and parents. So Jim, Sam, and Kish, thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, let's dig in. So the easy thing for me to do is, frankly, start with Jim. Uh, so I'm going to do the reverse, because uh, I want to let uh, Jim and y'all hear sort of some external perspectives. And Sam, I'm, I'm going to start with you, because I think that uh, you're in and out of a lot of interesting circles. Uh sort of established business leaders, uh, innovators. You're in the world of philanthropy still. You're in the world of, of media. Uh, this topic of the pandemic and schools and reopening, and what I'm really interested in is what happens after reopening, that next chapter. Uh, you're in and out of those circles in unusual ways. I'm, I'm wondering if you could just share, what are you hearing? What are the concerns? What are the hopes? Well, Terry, thanks for the invitation to join the discussion this morning. And I would uh, answer your question with one word, well, maybe uh, two or three words, a high level of frustration on everybody's part, uh, particularly, uh, well, people both inside educational systems and people who are consumers of educational systems, so students, parents, grandparents, other family members, business people. As, as Terry mentioned, I was in a family business most of my career for 40 plus years, and, and we hired a lot of entry-level people. And if those folks couldn't come to work, in this case, maybe because they had issues with their children at home using NTI, then that was a major problem for us at the office. So quite simply, high level of frustration, uh, and uh, a willingness to find solutions that obviously will protect everybody in the school building, be it adults, children, but at the same time get back to something that resembles what we all remember from a, now a year ago uh, as the way we did school. Okay, thanks. Kish, if, if Sam talks business leaders and kind of that level of community, uh, I know that you talk uh, from a perspective of paying a special attention to vulnerable families and vulnerable kids, whether that vulnerability is based upon zip code or the color of a kid's skin. Uh, so uh, 
I know you have lots of perspectives on this. Uh, I'm wondering if you could share a couple key perspectives. Again, sort of that same frame that I asked Sam, uh, your major fear and maybe a hope. Absolutely. And I would echo um, Sam in saying that uh, most people, including students, right, are highly frustrated. Um, Just not knowing is is really disturbing. And uh, this pandemic has been about that, you know, just not knowing, not having any answers, Um, families being concerned about the return and what that will actually look like. So in JCPS, when parents were polled about who would like for their children to return to school or not, the majority of uh, the students who did not want to return are black and brown families. And we know that the um, issues surrounding that are so complex. Um, A lot of that has to do with not really having a true plan that has been um, understood or communicated and understood um, in a way that makes sense, right? So the hybrid model of going to school and for a couple of days and then being off, for some families that's really disruptive um, to think of what happens during those off days as opposed to already having a um, rhythm and plan in place for the, the school year. Of course, we see that um, it, it may not end up being in the you know district's purview to really make that decision um, after yesterday's announcement from the governor and not really sure where that will lead. But um, I think in the return, a lot of vulnerable families just want support and want to feel like they can trust the school district to provide that support for their children, that they won't be in a place of um, feeling like their children are being penalized for what the circumstances were um, during this period of time. And because we were not able to really have um, those social emotional supports and um, just wraparounds that a lot of families need, uh, we know that we can expect that there's going to be a lot of um, issues that need to be dealt with uh, when we return to school, whenever that is. And so I think the best way moving forward for us to be in a space of um, having trust in this process is to have a good plan in place. Thanks, Kish. Uh, for for some of you regular viewers, you know that we usually ask pretty discreet questions. Uh, I want to emphasize that I'm intentionally today wanting our guests to have some time to riff because I think this issue is so complex that it doesn't lend itself to sound bites. And I say that because, Jim, I want you to have plenty of time. Uh, you've kind of heard the ex, uh, external perspective on schools. Uh, it's a lot easier for all of us. And I put myself as a, as a grandpa of some public school kids uh, in that category of, I wish they do this. I wish they do that. Uh, my guess is it's a pretty complex picture. We have 170 some odd school districts in Kentucky. My guess is that there's 170 different stories as to how this is going. So from your position as, as a real state leader, uh, can you first of all paint a landscape of what you think is going on out there 
And then again, I want to give you the same opportunity to talk about as a, as a seasoned and innovative educator, what do you most worry about and what's your biggest hope moving forward? Well, thanks, Terry. And I, I appreciated hearing the perspectives of, of the, uh, of the other two guests that you uh, have on the panel today. And, you know, and I think back to uh, last July, we had a convening of superintendents and, and, uh, uh, actually, Dr. Lou Young, who's the chair of the Kentucky Board yep. of Education, I'd ask Lou to come and, and uh, speak to our superintendents as one of our guests that day. And and I'll I'll, I'll never forget, she said uh, to our superintendents, she said, you know, you've got a lot of uh, options out there that you can choose. Unfortunately, none of them are very good. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of where we've been trying to figure out, uh, you know, what are the best paths forward? Uh, in a, in a, given a situation where none of the paths uh, are ideal or or what we would like to you know to be and uh, and so what I have seen is that uh, superintendents and their teams uh, their their boards and communities uh, you know have really uh, worked tirelessly to figure out what's the best way what's the best path forward in their communities and their local context. I think one of the things this pan one thing this pandemic has shown light on for sure is that a one size fits all solution doesn't work. Uh, and, and so, you know, what needs to happen in Jefferson County public schools, very different from what needs to happen in Pikeville or, or Ballard County, uh, you know, and, and, and places in between. Uh, but what I'm proud of is that our, our superintendents and their teams, have uh, have really doubled down and, and and offered a range of services. We have districts out there, and many of you all know this, but they're offering everything from uh, full in-person uh, options to hybrid in-person options to fully synchronous virtual options to fully asynchronous virtual learning options. And, and and an even fully remote in some cases where families don't have access to internet and, and that sort of thing. And they're trying to accommodate all these different needs out there uh, from parents and students who want full in-person to the parents and, and students that are still fearful to come back in-person school. And uh, so, it's, it's not been ideal, and I agree with Dr. Price. I think when we triage this situation and really look at the impacts, we're going to be astounded at uh, all the different recovery needs, not just academic, but behavioral health, social, emotional. All those needs are going to have to be addressed, and our, our superintendents have worried about that, and I think that's why so many of them have worked so hard to try to get kids back in school. And it's really been remarkable to think about what, what they and their teams have done. Uh, at the same time, we know it's not ideal and, and that the, the costs are gonna be considerable as we really reckon with you know, all the stuff that's, that we're gonna find when we really take a deep dive into uh, all the impacts. And so, um, you know, I just think, um, each community needs to put their heads together. Uh, you know, multiple heads are better than one, 
and try to figure out the best way to get kids back in school. And uh, I think another thing that the pandemic has shown us is that while we can do classes online, uh, we really can't do school, you know, uh, remotely the way American schools in particular integrate everything from the academics to the extra and co-curriculars uh, to all the social, emotional, behavioral health supports uh, that address the, the whole child's need and give our kids those hard skills and those soft skills that are so important in a successful life after school. And so um, I really do think each community has got to come together and, and figure out you know, how to deal with these adaptive challenges that we face. Uh, there's not a technical solution uh, path that's going to answer these questions. These are all adaptive challenges that are going to uh, require us to all come together and work together to find the best way forward to, for progress. Jim, can, let me ask a follow-up question because one of the things that uh, I just I can't wrap my head around, and, and as you said, uh, I think depending on where you live, you forget that in some places, kids have been going to school and they've been on playgrounds. I, I had a meeting uh, this fall, actually, in Manchester. And as I was driving through eastern Kentucky, I, you know, I saw kids out in the parking lot playing kickball uh, in other areas of the state. They're not back yet. So I understand this is very iter iterative and very formative. Uh, as somebody who spent some time in schools, uh, you know, I think about things like the kid on the bus who shows up with a temperature or that second grader, because second graders are going to throw up, whether it's post-pandemic or not. Uh, I think about my 17-year-old granddaughter, the challenge of socially distancing her. Just incredible. Uh, I, I'm wondering what you're hearing from a, from a pragmatic perspective from superintendents who have been at it for a while. Uh, what's driving them crazy and what is going surprisingly well right now? Well, let me talk about what's going surprisingly well. Uh, one of the things that's uh, that's been a remarkable success has uh, been the, the schools that, and the vast majority of Kentucky schools have some form of in-person services. And many of them have done this since late August. And other, th other than when the governor uh, had an order uh, to you know, shut down in-person services. And, and uh, one of the things that we're really proud of is that they were able to do so without contributing to the spread uh, or any of the surge. Uh, you know, it was really, there's compelling data out there that show actually uh, school is probably one of the safest places uh, mm -hmm. to be because they follow carefully all the mitigation strategies, uh, you know, of masking, social distancing, you know, hand and surface hygiene. We're doing all the temperature checks and monitoring and, and, and then the contact tracing portion. Now, the challenge has been because of the constraints of, uh, of uh, in particular, uh, quarantining, uh, it, it's, it's disrupted some of the in-person services because of the operational constraints, particularly around uh, classroom teachers and bus drivers uh, and other key personnel that are having to be quarantined. And, but, you know, I talk to superintendents all over state. Most of that's been because of 
exposure outside of school, not in school. Um, and, uh, and so we're, we're really proud of that. Uh, but it's also very challenging. Uh, you know, the costs have been significant. When you're, you think about the range of services that I just described, just on the, you know, on, on kind of really the educational program, much less the, the attempts that many of these districts have tried to uh, you know, build some kind of supports around the wraparound services that Dr. Price referred to. And that's, that's been a, a, a real concern of ours. So, um, you know, we're really pleased of those success stories. At the same time, it's such a fluid environment where things change. And of course, unfortunately, it's become a very political issue as well. And those challenges have been immense uh, as well. And so uh, it, it's put our superintendents in, in perpetual catch-22s that no matter what they do, uh, there's a bunch of people mad. Um, and, and so, you know, that's been challenging. But, you know, you think about, you know, I was talking to a superintendent uh, who uh, wanted to get uh, students back in as soon as possible in August because he felt like this is our best opportunity to build some relationships, make some connections, teach them how to use the uh, remote learning uh, strategies that they were prepared to implement uh, should they have to shut down in person and uh, and all that. And then he then he got him in and he was, you know, he was like, oh, wow. We're, you know, he, I remember he called me. He said, Jim, we can do this. He said, I just thought we could do it for a little while. And then it didn't, you know, it would probably fail, but at least we would have built those relationships and and uh, and, and and have those connections. And our kids would know how to do remote learning better because last March when we did it on a dime, you know, it was a real struggle. And so they, you know, they worked really hard to make that happen, but then they found out they could. And, uh, but then, but then now they're still just dealing with, you know, kids they can't find, kids that are disconnected. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, we don't yet know all the at-risk stuff. You know, I saw an article in the Courier Journal not long ago that talked about the number of fatal overdoses and that those there were more deaths due to fatal overdoses than COVID deaths, mm -hmm. and and not to discount <clears throat> the impact of, of COVID uh, on on so many folks and, and families, you know. But it made me start thinking about well, how many non-fatal overdoses yeah. have there been? Anc yeah, yeah, ancillary facts. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah, well, extrapolate that on into all kinds of at-risk behavior. Yeah, that I want to worried about. Yeah, I want to pivot uh, around two points that uh, Jim made. Kish, I'm going to come back to you around some wraparound questions. But Sam, Jim made a really important point, which is we we can dance around it, but this has become a very political issue. Uh, you're a you're a pretty smart observer of political issues, and as you think about this. Uh, I guess now you're a member of the media. So as you look at that, not just in your local community, which is Louisville, but from a statewide basis, what surprised you? What concerns you? How would you describe the political dilemmas that Jim referenced, that, that school board members, that superintendents, uh, that county leaders? Uh, talk a little bit from your perspective about what you see going on there, because I think it's part of a much larger national narrative. Well, it's 
it's almost as if we have, and this might not be the right choice of terms, but it's almost as if we've weaponized going back to school with the different uh, political parties that party A might, might use their position uh, in opposition of party B. And so what we're obviously the focus should always be on the students. And at the same time, the student's family, now we've turned it into a real ugly uh, political war on, if you go back, uh, what's that imply? Uh, we've drugged, fair or unfair, the teachers associations uh, into the conversation. And, uh, and tried to, to make them the bad guys, uh, which is, I think, totally unfair. And so it, it, to your point, Terry, it's really consistent, unfortunately, with what we're seeing in our political discourse nationally. It's, if, it's almost as if, well, if you're for in-person learning, then that also means you support this and that. And if you're against it, well, then you must be a supporter of those bad teachers unions. And it's just gotten to be, like a lot of things, unfortunately, really ugly, where the focus ought to be, what's the best thing we can do for our students? And, and as Dr. Price and I chatted about the other day, uh, you know, I'm, I have, we're all concerned about these kids who a year ago were in the fourth grade and reading at a second grade level. Where are they today? How much further have they slipped? How much more learning loss have we seen? And then the, the question is, to, to your point earlier, when we do all go back to in-person, how do we, to use Dr. Price's term, how do we triage this situation? Because I've got to be careful here, but a political uh, statement, I don't think public schools play catch up real well. And even if they do, it's very, very expensive. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good observation, Kish. We, you know, one of the things that everybody's talking about, which is a good thing, but I worry about proof in the pudding, uh, and that is that I hear a lot of conversations around that uh, the non-cognitive supports that students need, uh, social, emotional. Jim referenced it. You've referenced it. Sam referenced it. Uh, I'm wondering if you could paint a picture for our, our participants today uh, as to some examples that you at the Urban League hope to see. Uh, again, taking it from that broad category that everybody can agree with to here's exactly an example of what we're talking about. So you're waving a magic wand. Uh, what are two or three things you'd like to see schools embrace uh, to support that non-cognitive return to uh, learning? Great question, Terry. Uh, I would say, first of all, just a recognition of the family as experts and community partners as experts. Um, so much of the, I won't say burden, but the lift was on families and community partners for a year plus. Plus, um, and so, um, well, I'll say a year, I guess. Um, and because of that, it it was a 
true diversion from what most families experience and what most school districts experience, which created this, um, I think, awareness on both ends of uh, how critical family um, engagement and community engagement is for a student. I think Kish is frozen. So I'm going to reserve the right to return to her. And I'm going to ask you a targeted question, Jim. Uh, It kind of related to what Sam had to say. One question, and this may be a little bit in the weeds, but but you mentioned something. I think it's so important. Uh, I'm confused who's making the decisions right now. you know, uh, I was on an email exchange. I'm sure you got it before I did where uh, the commissioner and this is I'm going to make a statement. This is not a criticism. It's an observation. Uh, the commissioner sent out a note yesterday late afternoon saying I've just been advised that the governor is going to make an announcement today. Uh, you know, is the governor making these decisions? Is the commissioner, local boards, everybody, depending on what it is, uh, what's what are we going to see? Is, is that going to return to normal governance, do you think? Well, you know, we certainly hope so. And, and one of our strong advocacy points as a superintendent's association is to, is to keep the local decision-making uh, context uh, uh, in place as much as possible. Um, you know, I think going back to even what Dr. Price was saying, engaging families and, and listening to what, what our families and our students and listening to our teachers uh, and staff that are in there doing the frontline work. You know, those people are the folks that can help you make progress on these, you know, very di- difficult, challenging, complicated uh, decisions that we have to make trying to uh, do the best we can in this environment. So uh, but that's been a moving target, you know. The governor uh, has, uh, on occasion, made executive orders that have driven our decisions. Uh, that, you know, and so uh, certainly uh, the, the you know uh, the Department for Public Health has you know made decisions that have impacted how we do things. And so there, uh, there's all those layers of decision making authority that have uh, been at play here. And uh, and, and at times, it's been a little bit of a moving target. But again, our preference is uh, keep the local context and the local governance structure uh, at the forefront as much as possible. Because, again, a one-size-fits-all solution has shown not to be the best. And so trying to make statewide uh, policies, uh, Just doesn't fit. Yeah. it doesn't always fit. So we got to be yeah. real careful with that. Okay, Kish, we're going to see if you paid your Zoom bill and you came back because we lost you. So, so let's try it one more time. Uh, I, maybe I've jinxed you with the question, but, but so one thing you want to see is valuing parents and community partners as real team members. Uh, so what, what's another example that you hope you see to support the non-cognitive uh, needs of kids as they return? Yeah, so um, another way that I think we could be really instrumental in in addressing needs coming through the door is really focusing on um, what what we would call more of that social emotional assessment. Look, checking in with students to see how they're doing. You know, um, really being 
uh, deliberate about those check-ins um, where a lot of us see that in, you know, student, the classroom circles and being able to have those opportunities for students to just reconnect with each other. And we know that there's uh, requirements for, you know, social distancing and wearing masks. So everything's going to look and feel different for students. And we need to be aware of that and, and really intentional about trying to engage them in their learning process, right? So not the hit them with tests as soon as they come through the door or um, even being in a space where it's, you're missing all of these assignments, let's catch you up, but more of a, you know, how are you doing? Like just a true check-in, um, making learning fun and um, being in a space where we're really focusing on uh, what's important, right? Um, for me and the Urban League, what we've talked about um, extensively before the pandemic were these gaps in learning, right? And um, those gaps are usually determined by standardized tests, which we no longer have, you know, last year's um, data to be able to use as a, a, a cross-reference, but based on um, the, you know, the announcement earlier this week by Biden's administration that is now going to be mandated and what that looks like for the district um, really matters to us um, because we want to ensure that it is um, not going to, you know, cause more undue stress for students mm -hmm. and educators, but actually help in um, providing a way to really hone in on Really what we're saying, reading and math, is our, our, those are our key focus areas because we think if we can make gains in reading and math, um, specifically with our black and brown population, that will do wonders for them um, in moving forward. This is really a systems change that we're, we're hoping for, but we know um, we haven't heard much about that. And so when you say magic wand, if I'm talking magic wand, I'm talking a, a whole turnover, right, of curricula, um, approach, um, communication, lines of communication being open. Um, those things take work. And I'm not sure if we're in that place to do that. But that's that would be our, um, you know, magic wand. And if I can say one more piece about this, um, what has happened in this period of time for a lot of black and brown families, and this isn't just JCPS, this is nationwide data, is that a lot of parents for the first time have been able to see or witness firsthand how their students interact with teachers or how those teachers interact with their child and um, have real major concerns about that, right? Being able to hear those um, tone changes in a synchronous learning environment and hearing them talk, you know, with warmth in their voice to other students and then hearing them address their students and hearing the, you know, the disconnect there. So I, I guess I want to uplift and highlight that we do have a lot of work to do and the burden should not just be on educators, right? It's, it's a system-wide approach, but everybody has to see themselves as a part of the system. We can't just have this nebulous, it's the system and not connect the people to that. So that's what right. I would say. Thank Jerry. you so much. One of the things I appreciate about uh, Sam, Kish and Jim is they're very skilled at not just talking about problems, but 
they lift up solutions, which I have a strong bias toward. So I want to ask you this question. Uh, and we've got uh, maybe if each of you could take three minutes or so, and then we'll stay on time. Uh, let's think about fall. I don't know. What do you want to say? August 2025. Uh, and I have this hunch that when we think about schools in three or four years, first of all, I think they will be changed. Maybe for good, maybe not, maybe as much as we want, maybe not. But I I'm wondering, as you think ahead, get the crystal ball out, make your prediction. Uh, what is one thing that you hope schools resonate with, uh, animate schools uh, in the fall of 2025 that we can look back and say, as bad as the pandemic was, a positive came out of it. And that's uh, the, the result of that is schools today are that, 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 as opposed to before the pandemic began. So, uh, I, I really hate to just sequence it because I'm putting somebody on the spot. So Kish, Sam, or Jim, do one of you want to jump in with your three-minute uh, crystal ball prediction on that? Well, um, I don't mind jumping in first. Okay, thanks. One of the things that we've been thinking about as superintendent leaders is that you know every time there's a, any kind of a disruption, it, it's an opportunity for innovation. You know, there are, uh, you know, remarkable, attractive alternatives out there that we can land on and make things better. And I think uh, our superintendents and, and others in the education space are thinking about how can we make education better as a function of not just the pandemic, but the social and racial justice issues that we've been dealing with and, and make it better for everyone. You know, we hear those same stories that Dr. Price has, has shared. We hear those exact same things and we know that we still have kids that are falling through the cracks and aren't being successful in our school. I also think that there's some wonderful opportunities for our public to understand the value of schools even more. Going back to, we can teach classes virtually or remotely, but you can't really do school and capture all those other things that make schools in America special and special places. Uh, and, and the other thing I think we can maybe gain some traction on is is our obsession with standardized testing and Amen. high stakes accountability that actually is now a roadblock to that personalization that we really need to get to. And I don't, you know, I'm not offended by Sam saying we don't do uh, interventions very catch up learning as well as we should because what are we doing? We're we're, we're facing the the high stakes accountability. Uh, in the testing on grade level, not meeting a child where they are, but saying, no, we got to get you as prepared for this test that you're supposed to be, you know? And yeah. so maybe we're going to see a shift in some of that thinking, and maybe we're going to see a shift in families and, and business and industry realizing, you know what, schools are a lot more important uh, to us and we need to pay more attention and get more involved in helping them be what they can be. When yeah. I was a superintendent for 16 years, I used to remind our community that a community gets the schools it wants. If you want great schools, get engaged, get in, uh, involved, and hold us to high expectations and help us deliver. And, and so that's my dream. We're going to find these innovations to make school better for every child. Yeah, thank you so much for that thoughtful answer. Sam, since Jim referenced you, I'll go to you next, and then Kish, you get to benedict us on this question, okay? 
Well, as uh, terrible as this whole year has been, whether it's half a million Americans who have died, the impact on businesses, people who are unemployed, people who are really struggling. Um, I've kind of would follow up with what Dr. Flynn said. I think there are some things, some very positive things that can come out of this. Number one, as a non-educator, I would tell all of you educators on this call, clearly one of the things we've learned from this is to value teachers even more than we have before because all of our parents and grandparents and others who are trying to help their kids learn via NTI have figured out how damn hard this is. And so if nothing else, we're finally, I think, or we're, we're valuing our educators more than we have in the past. That's number one. Number two, just as uh, Dr. Flynn suggested that schools need to try to figure out uh, what positive things we can take away from this experience, those same conversations are happening in probably every business in the world, really, because it's been a worldwide issue, but particularly in the United States. So we've been doing school virtually in Jefferson County now for a year. When we go back to in-person, and we're now at 2025, as you suggest, Terry. Uh, I'll bet you we're doing some things virtually and expanding the opportunities. And, and, and Dr. Flynn, I wrote down your line where you said we can't do school online. We can teach classes. But we can't do school. I, I, I'm going to save that, and I'll always credit you. I really like that. But I think there are things that we've, that we've experienced and we've learned in the last year or so that we can incorporate into school looking forward. Again, one of the criticisms people have of schools is that in many ways we do school the same way we've done school for 20 or 50 or uh, somebody said 100 years. Fair or unfair, uh, is this an opportunity to be innovative, be proactive, and maybe try some things that we were a little hesitant to try in the past, but, the, but because of the pandemic, we've been forced to do. Thanks, Sam. So, Kish, it's August 2025. You're looking around and you're going, man, that was a terrible year. But here's one good thing that's happened uh, for our kids in these schools. What, what's that going to be? Yeah, I, I would say, um, I guess I took your earlier question about just what would I envision, um, you know, four years out. And um, I think it would definitely be a true connection to um, students being able to see what they're learning in the classroom and how it applies to the community that they live in. And that does require a true shift in mentality. It requires, um, you know, a change in approach. And if we're talking cradle to career um, mindset, um, we are looking to help kids. We were all kids once, right? And we remember being in class and saying, what does this have to do with anything? Why am I doing this? What's the point? And at some, at some level, we have to recognize that kids are, are experiencing that today. And some of them, unfortunately, decide to just check out. I'm done. This doesn't make any sense. I don't see how it applies to my life. Um, and I don't want any parts of it. And so the more that we can be intentional about that applicability, being able to have that application there is huge. And that means we do have to look at our curricula 
We do have to figure out how we are being intentional about ensuring that students are getting um, a, a very um, holistic view of their world. And that, re that just requires a, a true change. And it also means that we're talking about this engagement piece where schools aren't fortified and there's, there's more um, opportunity to be able to see how the walls of the school came tumbling down and we kept them down, right? Like that's, that's the, the, the hope that I think we have um, definitely from the league is being able to help students see how what they're learning applies to all facets of life and specifically with our core principles of jobs, justice, education, health, and housing. If we can do that and we can find that way to like really tap into what students are interested in, we don't have to worry about all the other pieces that seem so disconnected before. But if there's anything that happened during this period of time it, in unveiling and ripping off those band-aids is that the band-aids were never working and we need surgery and we need to be intentional about that. And we need to be gracious about the process. Here's the newsflash. Districts across Kentucky and the nation, there's no need to hold the community or families at bay to protect the, the schools thinking that in some way, form or fashion is keeping um, people from being critical of what's going on. We know what's going on. We know that 70% of our kids um, and vulnerable populations are not getting what they need. So let's just be honest about that and say, we need to work together. If there's anything, there was so much burden put on family. I just want to hone in on that, guys. So much burden was put on families and community partners to step up and try to support students during this time. And if we're being completely honest, Grading students right now is really a true grade and reflection of trying to grade a family's ability to be able to get their students to do something that was not ever designed to happen, right? And, and that is a huge equity issue when we talk about a family's ability to get all of their children engaged in the learning, however that happens to be at their particular school with that particular teacher. And then the grade is a reflection of that student's work or their ability. I don't think so. So we really need to think about how this will shift in the future. And um, I guess I'll end there, but I, I did want to give a, just a, a light story here. Um, a student, I don't know if you all caught this in the news, but a more more high school student um, here at, in JCPS uh, just recently in a basketball game, right? He, he's a foster, that. yeah, um, he's in foster care and um, just did a really, you know, out, out of the box thing in giving the ball to the opponent, right? He gave, he gave the ball to a senior who had checked into the game late and had an injury. And the, the, that particular athlete had um, missed a three-pointer. And he gave the ball to that same uh, student to be able to, you know, get a layup. And when he was interviewed afterwards, I'm sorry, it's touched. But he said, I felt like he needed a chance to score. And we just have to really understand the importance of all of our students being able to have and need that chance to score. 
And we have to set up the system to be able to provide. So I'll end there. Sorry. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much. So Jim, Sam and Kish, uh, I just got to say I'm humbled. I'm really humbled that uh, you guys joined us. Uh, Your thoughts were right on target. And I appreciate the advocacy that each of you in your own way give to kids. Uh, So uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, My colleague, Courtney Downs, I think is going to do the wrap up. So Courtney, uh, I'm kicking it to you. All right. Thank you, Terry. That was, that really was a fantastic forum. Thank you so much to Dr. Kishkumi Price, to Dr. Flynn, um, and to Sam Corbett for joining us today. Uh, The three of you really provided an important level of transparency and like internal and external perspectives around some really complex issues. Uh, And yet we still heard a lot of commonalities there. So we heard that there are frustrations from parents, from teachers, administrators, students, um, a lot related to just the unknown, which paths forward are the best um, when none of the paths may seem ideal. And then in some cases, there's uh, frustration that's compounded by environments that really aren't designed to thrive in NTI or other hybrid models. Um, We also heard that there is a willingness to find solutions that can benefit everyone Um, Parents and teachers, they really want to trust the school system and the process to returning to in-person, but also prioritizing some improvements, right? Because we can't ignore the impact that COVID-19 has had on them or or compounded. Um, There are really strong recovery needs, academic needs, social emotional needs. um, And as Dr. Uh, Kumi Price said, it could start with something as simple as just asking the kid, how are you doing? Right. So really prioritizing those wraparound services for students and families and and also prioritizing listening to what families and computer and community partners have identified as their needs. And and that's something that uh, will be really critical. And then just to wrap it up, um, you know, some of the positive things. It was really great to hear about that, that anytime there's a disruption, there's still that opportunity um, for innovation that you know, we're, we're valuing teachers maybe more than we did before. And then again, the applicability. Students need to be able to see what they're learning uh, in the classroom and then how it applies in the community. So again, thank you all for joining us. It was just a fantastic forum. Uh, we also wanna thank Aetna Better Health of Kentucky for their continued support of today's virtual advocate forum. Um, next week, we will be discussing the solutions to address the di- digital divide in Kentucky. So we will be joined by Commissioner of Agriculture, Ryan Quarles, and uh, we will also have uh, representatives from uh, Ohio Valley Education Cooperative and then other professionals uh, who have come up with some pretty innovative solutions to bridge that gap for Kentucky kids and families. So as always, we will send a follow-up email with a recording from today's forum. Um, If there's any additional resources, we will include that as well. Um, And we will send you all the link to sign up for next week's forum. So Thank you, everyone, for uh, for joining us today. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening to the Making Kids Count podcast with Terry Brooks. For more information and to listen to more episodes, visit kyyouth.org slash podcast. Kentucky Youth Advocates is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who doesn't accept government money so that we can remain truly independent. To support this podcast and our mission as the independent voice for Kentucky kids, please consider making a gift at kyyouth.org slash donate.